The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. world-leading testing system. We don't need to be world-leading, we just need to be competent. For Sally 200 Collier. grand a year as a civil <laughs> servant, and she's yet to speak. Nice work if you can get it. That's more than you earn, my God! Three. You can always lose any general election, but uh, I think the coronavirus episode will cast a long shadow. I'd rather have my Secretary of State for Education chosen on the basis of their competence rather than whether they're good at giving Chinese burns to Tory MPs and the Westminster gents. One. We have liftoff. Blast off number 13. Summer's ending, the days are getting shorter, but out here in space, planet normal keeps spinning, looking down on the madness of planet Earth. I'm Liam Halligan and strapped into the co-pilot seat next to me as ever is my fellow Telegraph columnist, Alison Pearson. Hello. She's clutching the joystick of our spacecraft. (laughs) Her Thunderbird's cap is on. She's twiddling the control knobs as Planet Normal comes into view and touchdown. None of that's true, of course, but Alison has written another belter of a column this week. It's on the exam fiasco. Pearson's verdict. It's time for Gav to go. Oh boy, is it time for him to go? What do we think, Liam? We're trying to decide which sitcom character, because he's been accused of being Frank Spencer in Some Mothers Do Have Them, which is a bit of an insult to Michael Crawford, and then Private Pike in Dad's Army. But but you had another idea. I reckon he's you? Blakey from On the Buses. <laughs> oh, I hate you, butler. <laughs> <laughs> but who yeah. will be Olive? <laughs> The hapless um, bus conductress. I have a terrible feeling it's going to be me. Obviously, we touched on it last week, didn't we? But all my dire columnist predictions came true this week, really. I said the England government should probably just, you know, say, right, we'll go with the predicted grades, the teachers' predicted grades, because it's it's not ideal. It's far from ideal. We are going to have some grade inflation, but set against the, you know, in crazy problems that we're going through, it wouldn't have been that bad. So if you remember, Liam, on the 10th of August, Nicola Sturgeon apologised to Scottish students and said the hires had been a mess and that they were going to be allowed to have what they call the CAGs, which is the centre-assessed grades. That's what the teachers have given them. And they do tend to mark up, obviously, being quite generous. So Gavin Williamson had plenty of time. It's a bit like he's not a bus conductor. He's the train driver. He can, You can see, Liam, the train ahead of you on the line has fallen into a chasm okay the bridge has collapsed it's fallen into the chasm do you think I'll drive my train along this line and fall into the chasm as well continuing with the algorithm determined grades or I'll slam on the brakes and I'll admit now that we're going to have to do a u-turn as well but Williamson continued and now we're into the wonderful blame game it's basically oh Sorry, sir, the dog ate my algorithm. It's that... It's <laughs> You're a disgrace person, a disgrace. It's an off-call lady. I can't remember her name, sir. But Sally she, Collier. Sally 200 Collier. grand a year as a civil <laughs> servant, and she's yet to speak. Nice work if you can get it. That's more than you earn, my God. And I could be doing Sally Collier's job and working three days a week from Norfolk. I mean, you know... I mean, these people, they are, I don't know, taking the piss, aren't they? Anyway, so so Gav, I think Gavin should have got schools back in June. We were told all primary schools would be open in June. He hasn't managed to do that. The teaching unions are running rings around him. And now we've had the exam fiasco. And on Monday, 
he was supposed to be launching safely back to school campaign because Liam you may know that in two weeks two and a half weeks time schools are supposed to be back but Gavin hasn't managed to launch the safely back to school campaign because he was a bit tied up sorting out the previous disaster so you know, I feel very strongly that he is not the right calibre of person to be in that job. And we can talk a bit more about this. Gavin seems to have been given the job because he was a rather good enforcer during Boris's leadership campaign. And I don't know what other parents think, but I'd rather have my Secretary of State for Education chosen on the basis of their competence rather than whether they're good at giving Chinese burns to Tory MPs and the Westminster gents. He's the former chief whip, isn't he? He not only knows where the bodies are buried, he's got a fistful of shovels as well when he wants to dig them up. There are lots and lots of rights and wrongs in this case. Of course, the biggest wrong is that kids have had their futures thrown into doubt in many cases, an awful lot of stress to themselves and indeed to their families. The political optics of this, though, are terrible. And of course, I think the government's presentation and communication strategy throughout this has been completely terrible. Boris Johnson should not be on holiday. He can have a holiday at some stage, but not now, because this exam fiasco, it has what we in the commentariat call cut through, doesn't it? It's not just the kids taking the exams, it's their parents. Everyone's got a niece or a nephew. Grandparents have got Kids that are taking exams, be they A-levels, GCSEs, you know, even if you haven't got kids, you'll know that there are kids in your street. Everyone knows when the exam season is and everyone gets a sense that the results are coming out. So this affects all people across the country in a way that very few other issues do. And even though Ofqual, the quango that was meant to be in charge of this algorithm, is a freestanding independent body, even though ministers aren't actually really allowed to see the inner workings of the Ofqual algorithm, which has handed out these grades, which seems to have gone so wrong. The perception is, and the government's made the perception worse by being so hopeless on the communications front, is that ministers are to blame. And then Williamson has responded, of course, as the machine politician that he is, by trying to deflect the blame elsewhere. And that is another reason, I think, why the public has got so upset about this. Yes, I agree. And I think that there are two things to say that what he's saying is not the entirely correct version of events. So Ofqual was told that the results they came up with couldn't have grade inflation. So the minute, I mean, you're the you're the mathematical brain, Liam, but the minute you set that parameter, that's going to mean that, that some of these difficulties are going to arise. And the second thing is, Gavin Williamson said he didn't know until Saturday that there were problems with the algorithm. But several weeks ago, the Education Select Committee told him that this algorithm is going to affect bright children in the poorest performing schools. So he knew that. So he has forged ahead. So I just take his excuses. I mean, they're pathetic. Now, I should say, Liam, this is quite interesting. I think perhaps quite a lot of our listeners are divided, as Telegraph readers are divided, because you get one school who is saying, oh, it won't kill them. They'll bounce back, you know, grade inflation. Why should they all get A stars, etc., etc.? I can see that point of view. I can. But I do think this is an abnormal year. And I also know of many children who've got good offers from these good universities and 
I think perhaps I feel so strongly about it was because a couple of years ago, my own son fell foul of a sort of exam board and an algorithm and his his particular group all got three or four grades lower than they'd been predicted. They all lost their university places. And if you know, I remember you you writing about that. You have to be in a room with your child uh, sobbing, um, which, you know, teenage boys don't normally do that and absolutely saying, you've got to fix it, mum, how can it be fixed? And you think it can't be fixed because it's just these vast, unaccountable bureaucracies, Liam, which, you know, computer says no. Computer says no. And we all have a dog in this fight. I have a a young daughter who's just missed out on most of her lower sixth going into her upper sixth. She's tearing her hair out that she's going to have a difficult time competing at the top universities because there'll be so many people with deferred places, many of whom, had they sat the exams, would have missed their grades. You know, the top universities hand out much more places, offers, than there are places because when you're get, asking a student to get, you know, two A stars and an A, you know, a big chunk of them are going to miss the boat. And, you know, that's that's the way the examination system works. So there are big knock-on effects. And what I'd also say is one of the lessons learned is, of course, about government communication and, and honesty and seeing things coming down the line. But we also need to remark that when you look back, teacher-assessed grades, they are systematically, massively overestimated, right? Only 16% of the grades that teachers give out end up being accurate. And of those that miss, three-quarters of those are overestimates of what their pupils ultimately achieve. Now, of course, many, many teachers have the best will in the world. They want their pupils to do well. They may feel their pupils need to be encouraged by giving them better predicted grades and all the rest of it. They want to think well of their young people in their charge. And of course, we want them to. But I'd say when only 16% of teacher predicted grades are accurate over many years. Is it, is that's it that low? That's it is that low. Then you have to start talking about, you have to start using words like professionalism, realism, fairness. In the end, this is largely down to government mismanagement. This is largely down to the secretiveness of the exam boards and indeed of Ofqual. But also there is an issue here with teachers systematically wildly overpredicting grades. So we get into an arms race that all teachers have to predict A's and A stars across the board. And, you know, when I did my A-levels in 1987... To get three A's was astonishingly rare. We've got to be careful of the not like in my day. I mean, I, I agree. But, but that's, I mean, that's what the numbers show, Alison. The huge proportions of kids. It used to be an astonishing thing to get. A, I remember, I'll never forget this. Chu said to me, Liam, if you want me to give you a first in your final paper, you need to teach me something in your final paper. I do think the government's struggling, Alison. I don't say that lightly. I think you've been right in the last couple of months to crank up your level of criticism on the government. And that's why I thought this week we should talk to a a really senior Tory insider on Planet Normal to try and help us ordinary folk understand what's going on. There's been lots of talk that Boris needs to surround himself, hasn't there, with more senior, experienced people rather than people that just agree with him. There is talent on the Tory backbenches, as we both know, and maybe he needs some of it in government. And one name that keeps coming up is that of former Europe Minister, former Chair of the Public Accounts Committee, former Shadow Home Secretary, former Brexit Secretary, the veteran MP 
David Davis. So I called him up, I asked him on Planet Normal. He's 71 years old, but he's fit as a fiddle and full of fight. And I started by asking him if he was sitting at home these days, wishing he was in government or glad that he's not. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad I'm not receiving the sort of uh, uh, torrent of opprobrium the government's currently getting. There's always a bit of me that, you know, where, as I suspect with any rational person, thinks I could do this bit better. You know, <laughs> We're all susceptible to that vanity. But they're dealing with what must be one of the most difficult problems of modern times, in peacetime anyway, and truth be told, I'm afraid they're not dealing with it terribly well. So there's going to be quite a long period of hangover after this uh, after this period, I think. Your former cabinet colleague, William Haig, has said that this could be another poll tax moment for the Conservative Party. Is that overstating it? Well, it might not be. I mean, I, I'm not sure whether he's talking about the whole coronavirus thing there or just the university or the examinations issue. And a lot of it will depend on how long the tail is in terms of the effect on the individual's concern. I mean, let me explain what I mean. The mess over the A-level exams obviously leaves a feeling of incompetence everywhere. I mean, there's no doubt about that. It's hard to, hard to dispute that. And there's some clearly sort of unforced errors. I mean, there's obviously some forced errors, but some unforced errors come out of it. Now, will it be a poll tax moment? That depends on the impact on the generation it affects. Now, if now the government's done its U-turn, or as somebody said, a reassessed A-star turn, <laughs> that was a wonderful line, it will, it will depend on whether the universities pick up the slack. I mean, I think at the moment universities are probably short of about 100,000 foreign students. I mean, basically one in five students in our universities today comes from abroad. Many of them won't be coming this year, which gives the universities some slack, particularly actually in the STEM departments, in maths and science and technology departments. And if they're smart, they will take in lots of kids who maybe have marginal A-levels on this, on this assessment mechanism then there will be very few people suffering from this disaster and the government will get over it. If, however, a large number of youngsters, both from the A-levels and, of course, from the GCSEs, which at the point we're talking we haven't yet heard, then it's got every prospect of being a poll tax moment because everybody will know some 16 or 18-year-old whose life has been blighted by it. So it will depend on how they play it out, how the universities behave and at the, at the GCSE level, how the sixth form colleges and the technical colleges and so on behave. If they behave to fix the problem rather than to worry about the calibration of a given exam, then it'll be okay. If they worry about their own institutions and not about the individual youngsters, it'll have a very long and painful political cost. We're speaking, aren't we, just as the GCSE results are being published. And as you say, this issue affects almost everyone in the country, not just school children, of course, their parents, grandparents. Everybody's got a niece or a friend's kids who are taking exams at some stage. And that's why this could be so dangerous. Yeah. Do you think Boris has made a mistake by being on holiday? Oh, I'm not sure about that. You can always rush back to rescue your 
Secretary of State, I think, uh, but but it's not always a good idea. I mean, would it have improved the quality of decision-making if Number 10 had stepped in instead of the department? I'm not sure it would have done. I mean, one of my criticisms of the current government is it's got too many campaigners and not enough policy writers, and that's particularly true of Number 10. And if you think the right answer will be got by looking at a focus group and looking at an opinion poll, then maybe the number 10 should have been more involved. But I don't think that's the case. I think the problem here was a serious technical mistake in the sense that the department and Ofqual, the organisation that runs the exams, focused more on trying to make this year's exams equivalent to last year's and the years before and years before, the so-called grade inflation issue, and not enough on the rights and interests of the individual students. That was a stupid error. No two ways about it. That was a stupid error. Would number 10 have avoided it? I'm not so sure they would. So I think actually probably better to leave the man responsible to handle it and frankly take the flag. I don't think it's particularly an issue about him being on holiday. I don't think people are worried about that. They're worried about solving the problem. That's what they're worried about. The Education Secretary, Gavin Williamson, of course, he didn't write the algorithm. He says he was constantly asking those who were at Ofqual and elsewhere about the implications of the algorithm that they were writing. That may or may not be the case, but isn't the political reality that he should probably now move away from the front line, certainly of the Department for Education? Well, that's always the easy answer. And again, does it solve anything? I mean, Look, he didn't write the algorithm. I mean, one of the problems with our entire ruling class in this country is that not that they don't write the algorithms, they can't read the algorithms. If you'd read this algorithm, you would have seen that there's one section of it that actually says, if you, Liam, are taking, let's say, a physics A-level and your school has had bad results in physics A-levels in the previous three years then you get penalised for it. Well, that's patently unfair. And anybody who'd read that and understood it should have seen it was unfair. So that's the the real question, not whether he wrote it, but whether he made himself aware of what the logic of it was and what the consequences of it were. But I'm not one for firing uh, ministers because they're in the middle of a, a firefight. If you did that, no government would last five minutes. Famously, Tony Blair was very, very slow to fire ministers because he had learned from John Major before him, that once you fire one, the press pack turn on the next one and the next one and the next one. And let me tell you, in the midst of the coronavirus episode, there are going to be lots and lots of people who make mistakes. That's pretty much guaranteed. The mistakes are not finished yet, I don't think. And if you fire a minister every time, you'll never get anywhere. You are, of course, from a scientific background. I think your degree was in computer science, well, wasn't it? Was, it? It, it, was, it was a joint honours degree, molecular science and computer science. My first degree was, anyway. And that is quite unusual. How much of an impact do you think this does have on British public life and policy making and the way we're governed that so few of our politicians are actually mathematically inclined, can read a company balance sheet, can look at a line of code and see where something's gone wrong, can, as you say, read an algorithm? Well, it, it makes a huge difference. I mean, I'm, I'm not too fussed about being able to read the algorithms, but I am fussed about the mathematical sensitivities. Let's say the coronavirus itself. It, it's now established the coronavirus, probably its infection rates doubles the number of people infected roughly every three days. Doesn't sound very much, does it? Till you do it for a month, and that means a th- the problem is a thousand times bigger mm. after 32 days. Now, once that point sinks in, you suddenly realize 
that you've got absolutely no time to waste to deal with the issue while it's small rather than wait until it's big enough to overwhelm you. Now, that was the huge mistake made in the early part of this government and the American governments and the French governments and the Italian governments handling of the coronavirus episode. And that all arose because they really weren't familiar with the effect of geometric or exponential series, how they could be look to be benign one day and malignant within a month. And it's those sorts of things that seem to me to be a problem. With, it's particularly about the British establishment, because the British establishment tends to like its politicians to have studied greats or PPE or classics or whatever, which is fine at one level. But in a modern world where technology and science drive so much, then I think it's probably inadequate. And I think it's something we should, over the course of the next decade or so, set about fixing. Is that your main conclusion then from how we've handled COVID so far, that the government was just too slow at the outset? Well, that's, that's, that's the biggest single problem, yeah. but it's by no means the only one. We've just had in the last week Matt Hancock talking about doing away with Public Health England and replacing it. I have to tell you, I'm not entirely sure that the replacement is going to be that much better, but we'll see about that. But one of the reasons he's doing that is because Public Health England was unable to deliver testing requirements to, as it were, catch, track and trap this disease. And you compare what we did with what the Germans did or what the South Koreans did, then we look pretty inadequate. So part of it's the mathematical problem of not being across the the problem properly, but part of it is institutional. You know, you've got all sorts of problems with Public Health England, not invented here problems, monopoly control problems. When they were struggling to get the testing capacity up, what they did was they turned down offers from other parts of the health service or even other parts of the state sector. I mean, Oxford University offered them laboratories. Yeah. The, the, one of the key things to think with a PCR machine, what a PCR is, is basically it's like a sort of molecular photocopier. Um, and there were loads of these around universities up and down the country, but they didn't want to use them. And they basically confined themselves initially to one lab in northwest London, which could only do about 100 a day. Compare that with South Korea, which had... 29,000 tests carried out within a few weeks. You know, they stuck basically porter cabins. I'm not sure what the South Korean equivalent of porter cabin is. They stuck porter cabins outside <laughs> every, every hospital and train station, you know. But the sheer centralization, and, and, to, and to be frank, uh, you know, frankly, slightly the arrogance of the British approach has, has, has cost us dear. I mean, you know, the number of times the minister was shoved in front of Parliament to refer to world-leading testing system or world-leading track-and-trace systems. It's patently not even that now, let alone when it was started. We don't need to be world-leading. We just need to be competent. And one of the fast routes to competence is something like this, where there is a lot of uncertainty, a lot of lack of theoretical knowledge, is to look sideways. Look at what your neighbour is doing. Look at who's being successful at this. And Germany patently had more of a grip on this than most of the other countries, as did Austria next door, as did Denmark, as did Norway. They all had a grip quite quickly. And we let that time slip away. And we should have been at very least copying them if we couldn't invent something better ourselves. But we convinced ourselves that uh, invented in Britain, made in Britain would be better. And I'm afraid on this occasion it wasn't. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, but my pals call me Chopper. 
and you can too. Just dropping into my second favourite podcast to tell you about another Telegraph show, mine. As a Telegraph's chief political correspondent, I spend my days holding politicians to account and asking them about the things that affect you. I speak to the top politicians from across the political spectrum, commentators with their finger on the pulse, and of course, my talented colleagues at the Telegraph. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, please search Chopper's Politics wherever you're listening to this. Cheerio! David, we're moving towards the end of 2020. That's when the transition period ends. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've been following ongoing negotiations between the UK and the EU closely. What do you think the outcome is going to be? Could we end up leaving with no deal? Well, it's always been possible. I still think it's unlikely. You've heard me. I've bored you to tears with my phrase, you know, the last three weeks matters more than the first three years. Yeah. And, and we aren't at the last three weeks yet. Why is that? Because the European Union, A, has a habit of doing this, going down to the wire. B, has a long track record of negotiating with people who are smaller than it and less powerful than it, and therefore basically imposing its will, so it's not used to the alternative. The best proof of that is the fact it's never really done a deal with anybody who's an equal. Mm. You know, China, the States, you know, those deals all fall through. The, the nearest it's got is Japan, and it sort of did that despite us in a hell of a hurry. So I think we are still going to go through a lot of very tense times between now and December. What I don't think they'll do, actually, is get it concluded in time for the formal ratification to happen mm. in an orderly manner. But I do think they'll get a deal or a bundle of different deals towards the end. I mean, at the end of the day, if there is no deal, there is no reason why the United Kingdom should not repudiate uh, what we've already agreed so far, uh, the, the current agreement. So we keep the bits we want to keep. We look after the European uh, Union citizens fine. But do we have to continue paying that bill? I don't think so. So there are quite a lot of things that ride on it. Of course, we keep saying that time and time again. They export more to us than we do to them. Even when they're importers of services, as in the financial services in the city, it would hurt them more than it would hurt the city to, to cut that chain. So I think there are a lot of pressures. You know, there will be a lot of uh, shouting from rooftops at each other from time to time, but we'll get there. We'll get there at the very end. When you look back, I mean, you and I were in really close touch during your period in the cabinet when you were Secretary of State for exiting the European Union. I, I know that you were putting in a huge amount of effort in those negotiations with your EU counterparts. You were coming to Parliament, you were talking to select committees, you were telling the world about where the negotiations were. And yet all the time, David, there was a parallel negotiation going on between Theresa May and a very tight circle that resulted in the Chequers Agreement. I mean, wasn't that outrageous that the whole negotiation was going on behind not so much your back, but the back of the entire British population and the world? Yeah, pretty much everybody. I mean, yeah, well, that's at the end of the day. That's why I resigned. It was your resignation followed after a delay by Boris's resignation, of course, that lit the touch paper on the grenade under Theresa May's premiership. And I knew that would happen. Yeah, I mean, of course the, you did. It was a fairly simple calculation, which is why I took my time. I mean, the the problem really exacerbated towards the end. I mean, up until the December deal struck over the Northern Ireland position, 
which was a separate exercise essentially done by Number 10 in the last few days. That happened because Number 10 or Theresa May, I'm not sure, you can't always tell, were afraid that the negotiation was not making progress. Now, that bluntly suited me fine. The less progress it made in some ways, the more pressure on the European Union. That, that sounds too simple. It's not as simple as that. But, but broadly speaking, I wasn't worried about us having to go through one or two deadlines without hitting the targets. But number 10 was terrified, I think, that it was going too slowly. This was a deliberate tactic by the EU negotiating team. They were slowing it down to, to, to our nervous. It worked with number 10. So I then had to swallow the Irish arrangements, which were agreed in December. After that, we had a row, publicly more delicate than that, but it was basically a row at Chequers in February, this is before the final Chequers arrangements, where the committee, the critical committee met. And it was judged at the time, I won the day. You know, I got the right to diverge. That was the phrase. Mm. Right just to make our own decisions. It was mm. as simple as that. And that was the point at which I think... Number 10 and a piece of Whitehall, even a piece of my department, I suspect, started running a parallel operation, parallel policy, parallel negotiation and so on. And you may remember I was criticised slightly for not going to a couple of the negotiating meetings with Barney. And I said to the Prime Minister, there's no point going until we decided precisely what we want out of this. Mm. And until I get my white paper, Prime Minister, there's no point trying to negotiate. We might as well do the, the technical stuff, but the big, big political negotiation needs to wait on a white paper, which this government approves. And of course, I knew that by forcing the white paper, I was forcing a decision on a whole series of critical issues where there was a yawning gap between our public position, as espoused by me, and Number 10's position. And that was what that's what blew it all up. So, yeah, of course, I don't approve of it. But I was trying to fix it without blowing the whole government up because, you know, you never quite know how that will land. If the one prime minister goes, you might come out with something else. But there we are. That, 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 that was it. You've been at the top of politics for a long time, David, if I may say so. You've been Minister of State for Europe, of course, as well as being Brexit Secretary. You've also chaired the highly influential Public Accounts Committee in the House of Commons but Brexit Secretary is the only cabinet job that you've held. You remain a very energetic and engaged person, if I may say so. Would you come back to the front line if Boris asked you? Yes, to do a proper job. I don't particularly necessarily want to be in cabinet just to be in cabinet, just to have the badge, you know. And I pretty much said that to him because, he, you know, he, we had a conversation before he was elected leader. And he said to me, he said, you know, I wouldn't be here if you hadn't stood down, which I guess is true. And I said, yeah, but Boris, you, know, you don't need to give me a job. If you want to do something, if it's something serious, I'll do it, but don't plague yourself with it. And that's pretty much my view. I mean, I take the view that if there's a serious thing to be done, then it's worth being a minister or a cabinet minister. But if you're a backbencher, you can do many things, not just one thing. You can change the direction of history in many ways. I mean, frankly, the most powerful job I've ever had was not being in a cabinet. It was a public accounts committee. Yeah, We've made just absolutely. about a 1,000 recommendations, which over 900 have been carried out. Mm. And that, that covered everything from reform of bits of the security apparatus right through to hospital-acquired immune disease, you know, a lot of social policy changes and so on. Now, those all matter. There won't be big headings in history books because very often it was stopping things rather than doing things, almost as important to the democracy. 
But, you know, I enjoy what I do. And I enjoy what I do not because of the title, but because of the task. But there is something, isn't there, in the sort of public perception that Boris has surrounded himself by people who agree with him, even if they lack experience. I mean, Nigel Farage on Planet Normal last week memorably said that the Prime Minister surrounded himself by a sea of idiots. Meanwhile, on the back benches, there are big hitters, including yourself, with tremendous amounts of experience who could maybe shore up his administration. Well, I think I think Nigel's being a little unfair. I mean, I wouldn't call Sunak an idiot. I wouldn't call Raab an idiot and so on. So, you know, I think... And, and by the way, all prime ministers surround themselves with allies and people who think like them. That's just par for the course. And so let's take that as a given. But what I assumed he was doing was surrounding himself with a lot of young people, younger people, younger generation, who he was giving a chance to. And in a way, that didn't bother me because the initial issue was Brexit. And what I didn't say in our conversation about Brexit, I think actually that the government's doing quite well on that. It's sticking to its guns and it's doing mm. the right things. So I think that bit's being reasonably well managed. So I thought that that was fine and that the others would have a couple of years to get their feet under the table, learn their way into the job and get the experience necessary to be a good cabinet minister. Unfortunately, what happened was coronavirus. And so what it's done is it's shown up weaknesses all over the government because ministers are still learning the trade. It's a risk at the beginning of any government. Had Blair had a big problem in his first year, it would have happened to Blair too. So I'm a little kinder than Nigel Farage over this. That being said, you're right, there are a lot of people on the backbenches I would have liked to have seen in Cabinet. I mean, Jeremy Hunt, I think, should have been in Cabinet. Yeah? Uh, he would have been a very useful player at the moment. I've never really understood why Liam Fox was not there either, because, you know, he knew his way around the international trade thing. He's a Brexiteer and so on. Uh, and I could, I could go through half a dozen others, but, but you, you see the point. I think it would have been better with hindsight if they'd leavened it with these new boys and the relatively inexperienced cabinet members with some experienced ones. And finally, David, this is Planet Normal. And what Planet Normal is about is how ordinary people from ordinary backgrounds are thinking. That's why Alison and I started the podcast. And I've always considered you a bit like our very first guest, Alan Johnson, from a different neck <laughs> of the political woods. But again, as as you'll acknowledge, from very ordinary backgrounds, you grew up in a council house in South London. You do have an un unlikely background for somebody who's achieved high office. To what extent has your background shaped the way you've conducted your political life? Oh, almost entirely. I mean, Alan Johnson and I are, are both, we were parliamentary neighbours and very close friends. And we actually used to be, we used to astonish people up here because we operate in cahoots, given that we're in, in different parties. And we both have, how can I put it, early issues in our lives. I mean, he had a sort of absentee father. I had the classy, I was an illegitimate child, so obviously I had an absentee father. We both grew up, in what we would consider to be bang normal environments, exactly normal environments. And, of course, it affects you. It affects my view on things like social mobility. It affects my view on, well, let's take the issue of the A-level issue now. I mean, my first, my instinctive reaction to that problem was, how do you protect the people who are going to be hurt by it? 
You know, how do you protect the students, particularly the ones at the bottom of the pile from the poorer schools? And how do you protect them? I don't have to worry about the Etonians or indeed any of the public school boys, but you do, and, and girls, but you do have to worry about those at the bottom. And that's sort of programmed into you. It's not even a thought process, it's an, it's an instinct. And, and that's right across the board. The other thing, I think, is although you have an ideology, I suppose, I think for people in our, from our background, both Alan and myself, the ideology is sort of less important. I'm described as right wing, but a hell of a lot of the issues I pursue are anything but right wing. Mm, uh, and, sure. that, and that's because they're based really in sort of observation of life, what matters, what's happened in the past, what's gone wrong. Somebody once asked me, what did I think was a qualification for being an MP? And I said, somebody who understands the meaning of the word despair. And by that, I don't mean the way you feel when somebody else gets promoted and you don't. You know, I mean, you, know, you, actually, you actually see somebody going through despair. I mean, I've seen people in my life go through suicidal phases. I've seen people lose their jobs. I've seen people, yeah, people lose their jobs. I mean, you know, maybe in their 50s or early 60s, they've got no other option. And then their pension collapses as well. Basically, if you observe that, if you see that at close quarters, and coming from Alan and my backgrounds, you do see these things at close quarters, then it means that something else takes the forefront of your mind when a problem comes up. I, mean, I was once told by a journalist, he said, you, you see, after a while he's talking about some issue, and he said, actually for you, he said, the only thing that matters is the underdog, isn't it? And in a way, that could be my motto. The only thing that matters is the underdog is not a bad way to go through life. And that's what my background's done for me. I would come back to do a proper job, says David Davis. That will cause some ripples. Well, what a pleasure, Liam, wasn't it, to listen at a time like this. I mean, we're just being, you know, hectored every day by Matt Hancock and his messianic style. And then we hear David Davis, calm, experienced, extremely honest and shrewd. We look pretty inadequate, he said. We don't have to be world-beating. We just have to be competent. I mean, you know, sentence after sentence of talking profound good sense critical but setting it all in a context I mean I, I really enjoyed listening to him talking to you I mean what I took from it Alison is I've, I've known David Davis for many many years is that he's such an interesting political character because he is characterized as right wing and yet he has the heart in many ways of a sort of soppy liberal mm -hmm. he does yeah. back the underdog he is difficult to classify and put in a particular box. I think he suffered over the years because the Conservative Party uh, in his earlier political life was just frankly snobbish towards a child from a South London uh, housing estate, though David would never say that. But I think per I personally think that's true. And also because he is very much a kind of sole operator. He's a self-starter. He doesn't need an infrastructure around him in order to make the political weather. That's what he showed when he was running the Public Accounts Committee in the House of Commons. I mean, what would have happened if he'd have beaten David Cameron in 2005 and become Tory leader? He could have been Prime Minister for quite a long time. Yeah, I think something that jumped out at me was that extraordinary thing he said to you at the end, somebody who understands the meaning of the word despair. That's a fabulous, fabulous definition of what it means to be an MP, I think. 
but so adrift from so many of them. So as you say, I mean, we had a couple of weeks ago, we had Ian Dale telling you that he felt perhaps inadequate in a room with David Cameron and George Osborne. And and I think there is something to this, Liam. I think this is why it's so interesting for us on Planet Normal. I mean, I can remember interviewing David Cameron and he trotted out one of those, oh, it's not where you've come from, it's where you're going to. And I got quite cross with him. Well, I, I felt cross with him because I thought you really don't know what you're talking about where have you had to walk from and there was a very funny moment which listeners might appreciate was he was talking about his daughter Nancy being a very good artist like his wife Samantha and I said that my daughter was very musical and he said oh great and I said to him actually David I've just entered the middle classes I'm not really very keen that my children should fall out of it so quickly and he looked astonished Liam he he didn't really understand and I think that's the difference isn't it is someone like David Davis is going to understand what it feels like to be afraid of the phone bill someone like David Cameron he's a nice guy he's a very clever guy fundamentally he's not going to get how millions of people in this country live is he by the way, just just to say, uh, the one thing I disagreed with David Davis on was he said, oh, what would be the point of sacking Gavin Williamson? Let me tell you what would be the point of sacking Gavin Williamson is that there are millions of young people in this country who are very, very disillusioned and upset with the government at the moment. And I think it would do a power of good to say this person has failed, he's failed you, and he's going. And Liam, you may remember back in, I think it was 2002, Estelle Morris, who was the Secretary of State for Education in the Labour government, Estelle resigned. And she said they'd failed to meet the literacy and numeracy targets. And she basically said, I'm not up to the job. What an extraordinary, honest and powerful thing to do. It still registers with me. And I think Estelle Morris was far better at the job than Gavin Williamson. So I think it would be about time that Gav should go. Gav, on your bike. (laughs) On your bike. So on to listener emails. Thanks to all of you who wrote into us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Alison, what do you got? I've got Timothy Woffenden here. Boris appoints incompetent loyalists and excludes far more able people who might just test policies in Cabinet. Thatcher never did this. BJ is not up to it. Absent this past week is camping in Scotland, Liam, in a, with all the midges and the rain. Poor, poor man. And a new baby. God help him. The degree of crisis demanded that he personally took charge. I hope Carrie's got some mozzie repellent um, <laughs> perfume. I can hardly believe my ears writes Jane to Planet Normal. A British government, never mind a Conservative one, placing its citizens under house arrest because that's what it is for the heinous crime of going on holiday. She's talking, of course, about quarantining after you come back from France now. It really is about time we Brits got a grip and told this dystopian administration where to get off. What's wrong with testing pre- and post-travelling? Now there are quick tests available that don't require nurse ratchets, poking your brain and taking three days to process the results. Love Planet Normal. It gives a ray of hope that there are people in this benighted land that can still think rationally. She's quite right. You're not even if you get back from France, they're not even allowed to walk the dog. I mean, it, absolutely <laughs> lo- lunatic. Can I can I just end with Jim Woodley? To err is human, but if you want to really f things up, you need an algorithm. <laughs> <laughs> That's a T-shirt, isn't it? That's a T-shirt slogan. I thought that was brilliant. Thank you, Jim. 
That's it for voyage number 13. Time to return again from this haven of clear thinking, this sanctuary of common sense that's planet normal to the madness of the real world. Thanks so much for all your emails. Do keep writing to us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. If you've enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and family. If there's anyone in your life you think might enjoy this kind of discussions we've heard today, we'd be really grateful if you could leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Planet Normal's free to listen to on the Telegraph website or by subscribing on your podcast app. Subscribing to a podcast has nothing to do with being a subscriber to the Telegraph itself. It just means the podcast automatically downloads to your phone or tablet each week so you don't miss an episode. And if you have any questions about podcasts, how to listen, where to find the best ones, there's a really useful article explaining all things podcasts on the Telegraph website, which I think Louisa very sweetly did for us. And we will put the link to that in the show notes of this episode. And finally, some more of your health and safety emails, your recollections of the health and safety practices of yesteryear or lack of them, stuff we did as kids that did us no harm. Keep your stories rolling in and put health and safety in the email subject heading. Here's one from Robert Ross. My childhood was a long time ago, which explains the somewhat unconcerned attitude of my parents to our exploits. My best friend William, something of a boffin, had a large stock of pre-war boys' own comics, full of dangerous ideas. It's a brilliant email. Robert writes about making grenades out of Liam Perrin's bottles, mixing sodium chloride and sugar, apparently. My mother eventually became aware of our amateur ballistics, he writes. When on firing our cannon, it left its mounting and ricocheted into the front door, which resulted in a visit from the police. We survived our childhood with body parts intact. It was great fun and hugely useful. My friend William became a scientist and I joined the army. We both continued to blow things up. Will Exelby, who spent his childhood in Bradford, age 12, my father inherited his father's old Triumph Toledo four-door car. We lived on a small cul-de-sac. My father gave me the keys and said, just use the road and learn to drive. My friends and I ended up all learning to drive. I love this bit. We specialised in acting out scenes from Starsky and Hutch. Jumping on the car. Racing down the road, handbrake turns, doors wide open, people on the bonnet, etc. I cannot believe, Liam and Alison, the era we are in of health and safety. It's a complete and utter disaster for the young, along with technology. Thank you, Will, for that. So that's it for our lucky 13th journey to planet normal. News and views from beyond the bubble. Keep those emails coming on elf and safety and anything else. Thanks as ever to our producers, Louisa Wells and Elliot Lampett, to our editor, Theo Leludis. Thanks to you for listening. So until next time, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Hi, it's Liam again. Just to say, if you're a Telegraph subscriber and fancy having an online chat with Alison and me, then head to telegraph.co.uk forward slash community at 11am every Thursday after each new edition of Planet Normal is released first thing on Thursday morning. You'll find an article at the top of that page where we'll both spend an hour replying live to readers' and listeners' comments. Join in the conversation. Leave a comment and tell us what you think, and we'll reply. Planet Normal. News and views from beyond the bubble.